Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive Radio, where we discuss emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. On today's show, we have Dr. Elena George, the founder and owner of Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center, and also host of Medicine on Call on America's Web Radio, and Frank Martin, CEO of Medical Consultants Group. And we're going to be talking a little bit about healthcare this morning. So I'd love to start the show by asking Dr. George, from your perspective, what are the key trends in healthcare that you think are really important for CEOs to be aware of? I think there's been a, a move towards centralization of the healthcare system. So we're talking about more, uh, less. Um, private practice, more movement towards being becoming employees of hospital-based systems and larger systems. What about you, Frank? What are you, what are you seeing? Well, I certainly agree with what Dr. George said. Um, there's a dynamic there. I think that there are um, some people, some doctors who have gone to work for hospitals that aren't necessarily enamored with that decision and are now starting to kind of move back into private practice. But it's a fluid situation. And not to disagree at all with Dr. George, there's many more um, people working for hospitals and many more doctors working for hospitals now than used to be. It's only like 15% of the family practitioners in the state of Georgia uh, are independent anymore. So. Great. And in terms of, you know, the implications for physicians, I mean, this trend towards consolidation has been happening for probably about the past three or four years. Um, and Frank, you're saying that there's been some sort of a swing, the swing in the other direction is starting as well. But um, would you say that that's primarily driven, you know, by economic forces and things like what's happening with um, the Affordable Care Act? It started before the Affordable Care Act, but it really picked up steam in the past three to four years. I mean, I graduated in 1998, and from the time I graduated, managed care was the thing that started, or, or the ball that started rolling, and people hated it. I mean, it was capitation. You had to go through a primary care um, gatekeeper in order to see a specialist, and it didn't last very long, but there's been tentacles of it that's, that's pervaded the healthcare system since then. So the insurance companies became more powerful, they started to, doctors ran scared into panels without reading contracts, and we ended up being lowballed, where we were seeing more and more patients, getting less revenue, and that drove where we are now. So we started to have to need extenders or physician assistants and nurse practitioners seeing hundreds of patients in, a, in an office per day. And that led to, I believe, to this disconnection between the doctor and the patient and this conveyor belt mentality where you can interchange everybody and they're all the same. And now the government has kicked in and doubled down on that mentality. So it's not individualized healthcare. It's no longer about quality. It's about volume and it's about cost center. And that's the problem with healthcare. And it's not going to be any more uh, cost effective. It's actually going to cost more money. Uh so what are you seeing in terms of the, the actual effects of the Affordable Care Act, um, both in terms of your own practice and then also, you know, Frank, you, some of your clients that are physician practices as well, what are you seeing in terms of the effect of the, the law? Um, I just, the pediatric practice I'm working with right now, uh, five docs of about 10,000 active patients on, on the roster. <clears throat> in the first quarter of the year, their um, visits were down about 30% because of $5,000 deductibles. 
uh, patients would come in and say, look, I've got four kids. They all have the same symptoms. I'm going to bring one in, diagnose, give me a prescription, and I'll just duplicate it at the drugstore for the other three. Not necessarily great medicine, okay, but you can understand from the parent's perspective what that's all about. I absolutely agree with Dr. George. It's almost like the choices you have as a physician, if you go to work for a hospital, your importance in the decision-making process is diminished. And a lot of doctors who are not pleased with the hospital setting um, find the majority of the dissatisfaction based in their loss of power over what goes on in the organization. Uh, if you stay on the independent side, it's a real struggle to continue to make the kind of money that she used to make. And Dr. George, again, is exactly right. It, it's treat them and street them. I mean, you, volume is important. Now, so Dr. Dr. George, what are you seeing in your practice? And then also, the, let's say, you know, through your show, what, what's your perspective on other practices as well? I think Mr. Martin's very right about the patients walking into your office thinking that they're covered, thinking that all they have is a copay, and when you spring it on them that anything you do past the tongue depressor, and I'm a specialist, um, is going to engage your deductible. And I've seen... $500 is a low deductible. I've seen $10,000 deductibles come in my office. And I've had two patients in the last two weeks who I sent for CT scans, have significant polyp disease, and they called back and said, I can't do it. I can't afford the CT scan. I'm not going to do it. And that's a tragedy. Why carry insurance? Why have a piece of plastic if you can't use it? And I've been preaching this for like four years now. Just because you have health insurance does not equal access to quality health care. And that's what people are finally figuring out. I could have, if they had bothered to ask a private practice doctor who has to make payroll, who has to see patients every day, who has to deal with this insurance fiasco, we would have told people that the, the cost of health care is not driven by the private docs. It's driven by the hospitals, the pharmaceutical industry, and um, the medical insurance industry. That's where the money goes. That's where... The, the, the bottom line is spent. Only seven, do, seven cents on the dollar is spent on doctor care. The rest is administration. And that's what Affordable Care Act doubles down on. Now these guys are mandated. They're, we're mandated to pay into their system, but they're not mandated to really take care of us. And for those folks who say that, oh, they'll cover pre-existing and so on and so forth, yeah, they'll cover it at $10,000 deductible. So you can have it. They'll let you have it all you like, but you're going to come out of $10,000 out of your pocket. So you basically ration yourself out of the system. Mm. One of the things, a, a few guests that have come on the show previously have said that they are seeing some decrease in cost. And statistically, there's, there is, you know, there's, they're showing that the cost, you know, there is some cost savings or the cost of care, care is going down. I see you wagging your head, Dr. George. I totally Dr. disagree George. with that. Please comment on that. It's, it's gerrymandering the numbers is because people don't come like Mr. Martin just said I'll bring in one child instead of four because I can't afford it it's not because they're paying less it's because they're not coming they're not accessing the system they're not going for labs they're not going for scans when they're supposed to that's why it's cheaper Frank I absolutely agree with that um, if we're going to manage there's two different things it's fine to manage cost, but if you're managing cost at the expense of care, that's not necessarily a good trade-off because it's going to come back to get you in the end. I mean, that those patients that did not get the CT scans, um, if they continue to progress down the path of illness, that's going to be more expensive. So while it may look like, like a savings up front, it will ultimately not end up being that. 
What about the the indigent um, indigents who are now coming into the system who couldn't pre- previously afford care? Apparently, that that has been happening, and there's some projection that that's going to actually help bring the cost down because they're getting into the system earlier. They're getting Medicaid for all for one, which means they're not able to access the same doctors that if they had commercial insurance they could access because a lot of physicians, private practice, aren't able to afford to take Medicaid or Medicare patients. And I can tell you, before I started really looking at my bottom line and seeing who was coming through with Obamacare, they got a lot of denials after the fact. So you'll see the patient, you'll call the insurance company, you'll get a pre-certification and approval, and then after you've done the service, they come back with, this patient wasn't covered, it's not medically necessary, it's experimental. That stopped my seeing Obamacare patients on a dime because it's a total rigged system. They tell you that they're covered and they just pull the rug out from under you in the, at the end and it's on the patient to, to pay for the bill. That's not right. And it's a total game and people don't understand that insurance companies make their money by collecting a premium and not paying out for the service. That's how they stay afloat. It's not because they love you guys that they're paying, you know, you're covered, they wanna cover everything, they don't. They wanna make it as hard as possible for the patient to access it even more maddening for the doctor to get paid. They want us both to give up and just go away. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of um, sheer dollars, um, Frank, and then Dr. George, you can comment on this as well. What are you seeing in terms of the impact on, on medical practices? Have they, They've lost X percent of their patient volume, X percent of their revenue collections. Um. I read a study not long ago. This is not directly attributable to the Affordable Care Act, but it's just a trend in the way doctors are, um, how they make money. A doctor of New York shared um, his personal finances on LinkedIn and uh, documented that in the year 2000, he made $300,000 a year, and he went down steadily every year to 2009 to where he made one hundred and fifty. Now, $150,000 is still a nice living, but... To go from 300 to 150 while he had to see more patients and do more paperwork to get exact, to, to get half the revenue he used to get, that's not necessarily a good trade-off. I think most doctors go into the business of healthcare because they like patient contact and enjoy the process of getting people better. They like to see good outcomes. I mean, why wouldn't you? And I think to a great extent that um, process has been inhibited by the regulations that were put into place because now you can't really afford to spend more than eight minutes with a patient. Dr. George. I would agree with everything you just said, Um, but I'm gonna put a face on it because I'm a practicing physician. And it's not just about the revenue, it's about the joy of practicing medicine. I graduated from an excellent program in New York. I did head and neck cancer and Sloan Kettering New York Hospital for Pediatrics, Lenox Hill for General Surgery, and I don't do about a third of what I train to do. I don't do head and neck anymore. I don't do pediatric ENT anymore. I basically have limited my practice because I cannot afford to do those procedures. The government stepped in about 10 years ago and started something called bundling. So if you do a procedure and it has multiple steps, they'll give you the allowed amount for the first, which is already an 80% discount, uh, 50% for the second procedure, 25% for the third par- portion of the procedure. And by the time you get to the fifth, you're not getting paid anymore. Then they add it to this, 90-day global. So if the person comes in for 90 days after you've done the procedure for anything, 
related to that procedure. And if you're doing head and neck, you have to change a trach. You have to do a lot of physical labor. You have supplies. You will not be paid for 90 days. Then about five years ago, they decided that you weren't going to get any paid differential for being a specialist. So we're getting paid. There's no consultation fee anymore. You're getting paid as a primary care doctor. But you have to see patients that are sent to you with complicated problems, an hour-long visit. You're getting $60, $70 for the visit. There's no doctor who's in private practice who could really afford to do that. That is the reality. Yet we're expected to do more with less. And we've done it. We've joined panels. We've added physician assistants. We've played the game. And it just keeps getting more onerous. It's not winnable. And I think there's now, and we'll talk about the trends further, but there's a movement away from doctors, from commercial insurance, from Medicaid, from Medicare. We are done. And it's about direct contracting with the patient. That's the future. Great. And so concierge medicine? It's not concierge. That's another misnomer. People think concierge, you think a couple thousand dollars a year. We're talking subscription, membership-based medicine, direct pay practice, $50 a month covers you for everything that's done in the office, for as many visits as you need per year. That's what we're talking about. Right. And so do you know of physicians who are are starting to move to that kind of a model? Me. (laughs) I'm Uh, one. And there are plenty across the country. Um, If people go to aapsonline.org, there's a list of doctors across the country who have moved into a direct pay practice model. And anything that an independent doctor can do to keep it in their office means that we cut the middleman out and we keep it cheap. And if you have less need for billers and people going after the insurance companies, you've cut your payroll and you can pass that savings along to the patient. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, people won't believe this when I tell them this, but if you use your cash to access health care now, it's cheaper than using your insurance card. You can cut deals from hospitals to surgery centers to labs to doctor's offices. It'll give you 70% discounts, but you're getting better care. That's, that's what's going on, but people just don't know about it. So, Frank, have you seen this, this model where you can subscribe? And, and how does that actually work, let's say, if you need specialty care? Yes, I have seen it. Um, I myself, uh, I very much appreciate the difference between the subscription model and concierge. But I just joined a concierge model, um, which is um, a very nice thing for me. Um, but it, it, I think it's important to recognize that the um, growth of the subscription model is absolutely here. It's growing r- rapidly. A- and I'm incredibly for that. But it also is important to recognize that to a certain extent, you've shifted the cost right back to the patient, which is what you were trying to avoid. Even though there's a discount to the patient, which is significant, the patient is the person responsible for paying. It used to be that the insurance company was the party responsible. Now it's the patient. So all we've done is just shifted the burden. But at least in my understanding, because I'm paying the insurance company, I'm still pa- I'm I'm actually paying. Yeah. It's just that I'm pooling pooling my payments with a whole bunch of other people to decrease the risk. Well, so just for clarity, can sure. you guys describe the difference between concierge medicine and this subscription model that you're talking about? Concierge generally is more expensive. That's the one major difference. Um, I think that this direct pay is more of an every person's kind of practice. I don't care if you're working class. I don't care if you're, you know, white collar, blue collar. Most people can afford $50 a month. They're paying 
costs five or six hundred dollars a month to carry a piece of plastic, and then they have to add on two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand dollar deductibles. This is a fraction, and you know that's the. I personally think the problem is that you have a middleman that's inserted themselves between the doctor and the patient and wants to take care of your payments, but there's a cost to them. You have to pay them for the management of your healthcare dollar, but they're taking a double dip from it. It's much cheaper to go directly to the doctor and tell, I have a sliding scale in my practice. I barter in my practice. I do membership-based, and I, I'm kind of a hybrid. And if someone comes in and doesn't have insurance, I will make a deal with them. You know, we'll have a sliding scale. You're not going to get that with an insurance card. You're not going to get that with concierge. It's a flat fee. Whoever doesn't meet that hurdle to get into the practice doesn't get in. So this is more from, from my standpoint. I want everybody to be able to access quality health care. I don't care if they have means or not. And ultimately, it's about having skin in the game. But you're, you and your doctor are partners. It's not you working against each other. It's not you resenting your physician because you have to come out of more money out of pocket than you, than you have, and you've been paying right along. I understand the mindset. I'm paying $1,000 a month. What am I getting for it? I don't blame a patient for thinking that. And there's another model which exists that, again, people don't know about. Under the Affordable Care Act, there's something called um, uh, membership, I'm sorry, um, drawing a blank on it, but it's, uh, it's Liberty Health Share is a version of it, but it's medical cost sharing. That's another model that people don't know about. And so, all right, so we have concierge, medical cost sharing, and subscription. Concierge, from what I understand, is, you know, there's a, a doctor who says, you know, I don't want to take insurance anymore. I'm going to have a small core group of, of patients. They pay me $2,000 a month, and they can come see me anytime, or I'll go to their house or go to their office and, and, and see them. Mm -hmm. The subscription is, you know, you pay $50 a month. You can come as often as you like, but it gives... But a lot more is in-house. So okay. instead of having to send a patient for labs, it's done in the doctor's office. It's included in the subscription. They have a means for laboratory, for EKG, for x-ray. It's really a one-stop shop. So you, and a pharmacy usually. So you keep the cost controlled because your, your group or your practice has all of the benefits within it. Okay. And what about medical cost sharing? How does that work? That is a consortium of patients or individuals all over the country who pool their resources and they, they volunteer to pay each other's medical costs. And so you're pooling a huge amount of monies, and it's covered for anything medical, nothing cosmetic, nothing frivolous, just what you need. And that would include cancer care. It includes vision, dental. They even expanded in Liberty HealthShare model to holistic care. So you, they, they go in front of you to the hospital, to the doctor's office, and pre-negotiate a rate. And you can go to any doctor, any hospital you want to. All you have to do is present your card. And the cool part about this is that the maximum out-of-pocket is $500 per year for Liberty HealthShare. I actually joined as a member because I felt this is the way I want to go. I want to control my pocketbook. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And I'm paying $199 a month. And if I were a family, it'd be $349 for a family of three and above and $500 per individual. Now I'm covered at a million dollars per year per occurrence with $500 out-of-pocket. That trumps anything I could have gotten in the commercial market where I would be paying 6000 10000 out of pocket. And that 
is the fee-for-service model in a nutshell. And I'm a physician, and I take Liberty HealthShare patients, and this is what I love about it, and I think every doctor should know about it. They have a pre-negotiated rate for doctors, hospitals, surgery centers, 150% of Medicare for an office visit, 160% of Medicare for a hospitalization, and 170% of Medicare for a procedure. That trumps anything a doctor will get with Medicaid, Medicare, or any commercial insurance. I don't have a pre-cert for my patients anymore. I can call them up. What's this membership? What is their their cost sharing, their their shared amount? Have they met it, the 500 bucks? After that, I'm covered, and I get paid two weeks a month. I'm happy as a clam. I want to see these patients every day in my office because I can be a doctor again, and I can actually afford to stay open, and I can love it, spending half an hour, 45 minutes with the patient now instead of seven minutes and sign a chart and out the door. That's not what I went to medical school to do. So this, um, the medical cost sharing is basically a, a group of people who decide to self-insure? It's not insurance technically. It's a membership. But it's written into the law, into the Affordable Care Act, that anybody who's like-minded, used to be religious-based organizations, now it's anybody who like-minded people joining their resources together are covered under that model. So as a member or my patients who come in, I don't have to worry about a fine because I'm covered under the Affordable Care Act, but I'm not covered in the same way. That's the difference. And so, Frank, are you thinking that these kinds of alternative business models are going to be um, the future of medicine for doctors' practices? First thing I want to do is congratulate Dr. George for her flexibility and uh, dedication to patient care, just finding a way to make it work and make people better. Um, that's a wonderful thing. Um, yes, I do think that people are going to get creative because they have to. I mean, um, we are not yet faced with an outbreak of health. So as people get sick, they're going to find creative ways to, make them, to help get themselves better, and doctors are going to find creative ways. Because you still have, you, I mean, the basic problem is you still have people that are sick. You still have doctors that enjoy the practice of medicine, have the skill set and the dedication and the attitude that makes them want to help those patients get better. And so those two parties are getting together and creating ways to make the financial side of the relationship work. And that's kind of, you know, what capitalism is all about. So, you know, you have talked a lot about, you know, the financial challenges, but are there, what are some of the other challenges that are facing independent medical practices that you guys are seeing? Or is it all just money? No, it's your, your livelihood and your, your freedom. I mean, medicine, I'm sorry, um, maintenance of certification is a big thing coming down the pipe where I, I board certified and, and passed my board the first time I took it back in 1998. Now there's something afoot where they're trying to make people recertify. They'll pull your board status and you'll have to take a test every year. They're trying to make it every two years now in order to keep your board status. That's like telling a lawyer you have to pass the bar over and over again. And ultimately that becomes a cost prohibitive cost, time-intensive procedure, where you're spending all your time trying to take a test and, and just to stay open. And if you're not board certified, you can't be on a staff of a hospital. So you become a, a slave to the whims of your specialty board, who's making hand over fist on it. And, you know, you're just, it's, it's, it's maddening on that sense. And then on the hospital side, you've got peer review where if you decide you don't want to treat a patient using an algorithm set up by the hospital, you're disruptive, and they can cite you for, for being a disruptive doctor, and you won't be on a staff at any hospital. Basically, your career is over. 
So these are the things that doctors deal with. You know, they, they, it's like herding you into a pen with a cattle prod, where they tell you know it's nice on the outside, but the way they get you to do it, it's forget about autonomy, forget about being able to be an advocate for your patient. You're moving more towards being part of a system and a whole. And I like to use the the analogy of being an agent for the government and not an, not an advocate for your patient. I refuse to do that. And there's many more like me that are really getting to the idea of if I really want to take care of my patients, I'm going to have to jump through so many hurdles. I may not have a livelihood. I need to opt out now. I need to find an alternative route now before I can't. What about you, Frank? What are the, some of the other challenges that you're seeing f facing independent physicians? Well, just to Dr. George's point, um, over 80% of physicians who were queried said they would not recommend that other people become physicians, which is kind of a shocking number. Um, the, I, I absolutely see the operational struggle. How can I balance the need to spend time with patients and treat them as individuals and pay attention to them versus the economic demands and, and the regulatory demands that are forced upon me by outside bodies. Um, and it's a difficult challenge. Kind of my job is to help practices use technology in a way that can ease that. But Dr. George is right. I mean, this is a significant challenge. The more and more and more hoops and regulations that physicians have to jump through, the more onerous it becomes, and it ends up manifesting itself just as a, not, as a hidden cost that people don't necessarily understand, but it certainly costs the practice is time and money. And that sooner or later reflects itself in patient care. So you mentioned technology, and, and you know, it's often touted as a, as a solution to efficiency problems and trying to get the cost out of out of businesses and business in general. And so how are you seeing technology influence your work and are you finding it helpful and how are you using it to, to deal with some of these issues? Um, from my standpoint, there are uh, automated patient notification systems that can keep more patients on protocol and the notification is done, it's set up through the computer. So um, it doesn't cost the practice as much money, okay? There are ways that you can set up payment programs with patients and the um, payment programs are facilitated through the patient's credit card and not the practice, so you don't have to worry about billing. Um, with electronic medical records, which some people like and some people don't, it's entirely possible to um, optimize screen design so that the physician gets a chance to spend as much what I call heads-up time looking at the patient versus heads-down time and recording information in the computer. The technology's progressed. But you have to be mindful. I mean, um, in order to be a successful business, you have to align people, processes, and technology. If those three things aren't aligned properly, it's not going to work. And there are many cases in which um, offices use technology but don't use it wisely. What about you, Dr. George? Are you finding technology helpful in dealing with some of these issues? Well, I was an early adopter of uh, electronic medical records because I'm a solo practitioner. So I, I've been using them since I opened my practice solo in 2001. I've gone through three different EMR systems. And yes, the, you know, a lot of things are automated now, but it still doesn't it still takes me the same amount of time to finish my day. I'm still getting home at 8, 8.39 at night. And I still have the hurdle of having, you know, having, being sitting next to your patient and writing your note, you know, by hand. I still do that. 
and then I go and transcribe it in my office into the computer. Because that, that barrier where you're really not looking at the patient, you know, that's the art of medicine. It's reading body cues. It's looking at someone in the eye. It's actually having a conversation, which a lot of times may have nothing to do with why they're there. It's getting to know them. The automated EMR system doesn't do anything to help that situation. And, you know, on the flip side, some of these automated billing, they keep calling the patient over and over, and then we end up getting calls like, I already paid the bill. So it has pluses and minuses to it, and it's a cost, too, even though it centralizes everything. That's 6% of your bottom line per month, so it does tend to add up, but you have to be compliant with the regulations out there. And it's, you know, HIPAA, you know, the, the privacy, all this other thing, it's just a lot of who, again, hurdles to jump. It doesn't make anybody any safer. Look at Blue Cross. They had a breach of their, their patient database. The football player who had the hand injury, what's the point of HIPAA if everybody still knows what's going on or someone can hack you? So, I mean, ultimately, it's still, let's, let's be frank about it. It's not the end-all, be-all, but it's become a cost to a practice. And it was a lot safer when it was in handwritten paper form in your office, locked, than it is now on, on a cloud. Right. And so, you know, as we look towards, you know, solutions, what do you what do you think are some of the, the answers to, to, to these these problems? You know, how, how do you foresee, you know, all of this kind of moving forward? What are you anticipating, let's say, in 20, 2016 and 2017 in your practice, Dr. George? I'm moving towards getting out of all commercial insurances. That's my ultimate goal. I see the writing on the wall. Aetna just bought Humana. Uh, I think Edna made a play, no, no, Blue Cross made a play for Cigna. These are going to get bigger and too big to fail. And when they become the only game in town, they're going to have more power to lower our reimbursements and make us jump through hoops. It's not going to get easier for physicians. I don't care how many ways we try to, to manage it. The end point is still the same. Government and commercial insurance is running the healthcare system and us being pawns within it. Our job is just to follow an algorithm, you know, <laughs> give the patient a medication, and, and what patients don't know and doctors are not aware of under the new HR2, which is the, the doc fix they just made, it's now based on value and, and, and outcome medicine. So if your patient doesn't get better, you won't be paid, right? So if you readmit them to the hospital with the same diagnosis within 30 days, you won't be paid. It's your fault. I mean, they can do whatever they want on the weekend, but if they're back in the system, you're a bad doctor. And there are consequences now, and they're financial and they are social, and there's all sorts of consequences that'll come down the pipe to keep the costs out. I'm, I'm just not gonna play the game, just not gonna do it. So what's HR2? That's the, the doc fix, the new law that was passed by, by the government in the last, what, two months ago? Um, and it sounds great that we're all, you know, we, we have our payment system locked, so we can't be dinged by decreasing Medicare payments, but it came along with a lot of other things that nobody really paid attention to, and value-based and accountable care organizations. Those are huge pressures on the doctor to go along and get along. And for those who don't know, accountable care organizations are consortiums of hospitals, doctors, and the ancillary practitioners within a system. They get a certain amount of money per year, and they have to deliver their, their patient care based on that pot of money. They make their money at the end of the year by the services they don't provide, 
right? So there's going to be a lot more pressure for telemedicine, for not admitting you, for getting you out of the hospital as fast as they can get you. And I believe hospice care is going to become a huge player because it's cheaper to put someone in that track than it is to put them in an ICU and do heroic measures. It's all about cost centers and money in this system. And whoever controls the purse strings controls access. That's how I see it. It's played out exactly how I thought it would. And I see the next level of it. Doctors will be trapped in it through maintenance of certification, through trying to make our licensure national so that it's not by state anymore. All sorts of things to make us subservient. Mm. What about you, Frank? What do you, what, what do you see coming in the next year to two years? I was surprised to find out that there are over 50,000 self-insured companies in the United States. Um, and it, I, I assumed, wrongly, that um, you had to be a pretty good-sized company in order to afford to be self-insured. Yeah, not so much. Okay, there are lots of companies that are smaller that are self-insured. And along the lines of coming up with creative solutions, um, if the CEO of a company wants to take the position that I am very interested in the well-being of my employees and they understand that high turnover is a bad thing, it's more expensive to turn over employees than it is to keep employees, it's cheaper and better in the long run to hire wisely, to hire people that share the company values and then keep them and to treat them as if they are real valuable uh, members of the staff. If you become self-insured and work with doctors to create um, payment models that are more effective at managing things, I think there's going to be a, there's, that's going to happen. I, I totally agree with Dr. George that there are um, always ways that you can get things done, and we will discover those as time goes by. Uh, affordable care organizations are exactly as Dr. George described. There are ways to diminish the amount of care given. You have a given population. You get paid on your ability to treat that population for a lower cost. That's withholding care. Well, one of the things, you know, on the withholding care thing, I've, I've seen some long-term studies that say the amount of money that we're spending on health care as the population ages, you know, it's just... Um, unsustainable, right? At some point, we're going to get to the point where the amount of money just, there just isn't enough money in the system to uh, cover the cost of care for the aging population. And so, you know, things like this hospice thing that they say, and I don't know the exact numbers, but it's like 80% of the cost of medical care in somebody's life is incurred in the last six months. I mean, mm -hmm. they're going to die anyway. I mean, I know that that sounds horrible and, and crass, but the point is, is, you know, I was given the example that um, in the United States, if you have a 90-year-old person who comes in with, you know, COPD and heart failure and diabetes and they go to the hospital with an emergency at the age of 90, you know, there's all this cost and, you know, all these heroic measures to save the person. In Europe, if somebody, you know, who's 90 who has COPD and diabetes and heart disease goes to the hospital, their, their family's like, well, you know, I think it's time to start making some funeral arrangements for Uncle Bob. You know, and it, you know, I mean, so. You know, there's, it sounds great until you become the senior citizen. And I can tell you personally, it happened to my dad, who's 89, he had an obstruction. He lived in a socialized medicine country and they wanted to warehouse him with the other seniors at the end of the hall with no nursing. And I took him out and put him in a private setting and, and paid for his surgery. 
He danced at his 90th birthday the next year. So I don't want to hear anybody tell me that you're, you're just a number, you're old, what good are you anymore? I just don't subscribe to that. And this is artificial lack that's been created. This is a system that's driven on rationing. And then they tell us it's rationing, so you should like getting nothing. I don't subscribe to that. There's plenty of doctors out here who want to take care of patients who are handicapped from doing so. Why don't we let the free market run? There'll be plenty of people who want to do geriatric medicine. There'll be, you know, if you try, you know, wellness for a change instead of having people take medicines. This is a whole different show, I know. <laughs> but ultimately, a lot of changes that we could make with our lifestyle choices, with what the value we place on each other and what we put on our bodies makes a big difference on how much we're going to spend down the road. And the hospitals honestly are gouging the system. There was a whole st uh, an article about how doctors or how hospitals are paying or charging upwards of a thousand times more, thousand percent more than another hospital in the same city. They need to actually be transparent. That would bring the cost down dramatically. It shouldn't cost you, you know, ten or fifteen bucks for a Tylenol or for a bedpan. That's what they're doing, and they need to be held accountable. They've already ratcheted down on us as physicians. They need to be the next group or the section of healthcare that gets looked at. Same thing with medical insurance, same thing with pharmaceutical industry. I can't tell you when a new, an actual new ENT drug came out, it's been years, they keep doing the same medicine, adding two together, calling it something different, and charging astronomical amounts of money. And another thing, the generics are huge now. So I, a patient of mine, an ear preparation for itching ear was $40 by prescription, now under the Affordable Care Act and all the other stuff, it's $200 for the generic. Someone's gouging the system. Nobody's looking at that side of it. There's a lot that can be done instead of denying people care. I think that we should think about that. What about you, Frank? Uh, um, I have to restrain myself here. Um, <laughs> Don't. It's I, fine. No, I, didn't. I absolutely agree with Dr. George. I mean, the cost of healthcare is made up of lots of different elements. What doctors receive is one of those elements. Um, amazingly enough, when everybody said we have to bend the cost curve down, um, no one was the first to volunteer to take a salary cut. Mm. Uh, who? I mean, gosh, why not? Right? So it was forced on doctors. And doctors are clearly paying the price. Unfortunately, that's the operational element. As Dr. George points out, the administrative element, hospital administrators, insurance company administrators, to the best of my knowledge, have not seen nearly the kind of pay cut that doctors have. In fact, they seem to be doing quite well. Thank you very much. So in a system in which you are making it more difficult for the patient's to get good care, but making it easier for administrators to make more money. I think that's wrong from the get-go. Hmm. And so one of the, th the things that you guys anticipate is that there's going to be some movement in the market away from insurance and people f looking for other solutions other than just kind of mainstream commercial insurance for sure. I think is if as people get more educated and learn that there are options and alternatives, there's no one way to do this for everybody. There should be choice. That's the key. Obamacare is not going anywhere. We, we figured that out after the Supreme Court decision. I'm not asking my congressman to do anything about repeal and replace. It's never going to happen. But I know that I can work within the system to make it work for me at this point. And I agree. The, the small businesses, and I think corporations are probably going to wise up at some point too, Self-insuring is key. And for my 
small group. We used to belong to a lot of commercial insurances and it became so expensive. I couldn't cover myself or my employees for a couple of years. I took the same medical car sharing model and applied that to my business. So now I cover my employees under that. Their out-of-pockets went from 2,500 now to 500. Everybody's happy. And then I added something like supplemental, like Aflac. So now we're totally covered. I'm paying a fraction of what I did. And I'm actually keeping my employees and, again, taking good care of them. So they remain loyal. Mm-hmm. And, and you can do it in a way that doesn't break the bank and that stays true to your values as a, I'm happily a capitalist. You know, I think we should be able to run our own ship the way we see fit as long as it doesn't encroach on somebody else. And I found the answer from my office. And I'm sure if other doctors, small businesses knew about self-insuring, about medical cost sharing, they would jump out of a, what are they trying to raise? Blue Cross 50% their premiums this year. I mean, this is this just going up. They're not going to go down. So if we put pressure on the system, they have no competition. It's a crony capitalist system, technically, because it's they're an getting... Oligop- it's an oligopoly. Yeah. Absolutely. They're getting mandated, subsidized, too big to fail. Nobody can kind of cut them out. But if they had some competition, and people voted with their pocketbooks, they would actually start respecting us as doctors and patients and come to us. That's the, that's the power we have. And we can do it ourselves. We don't have to depend on some legislation to do it. Why is it not happening more? It is actually just its grassroots, you know, commando level. <laughs> yeah, there's a big difference between happening and being reported. Exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay and I, I really agree. Um, the more centralized you make things and the, um, the more algorithms you set up, um, that's fine. I mean, I'm not certainly not against algorithms, and I'm not against processes that work. But you have to leave room for experimentation. And I think what's happening now is that more and more people are going to experiment and find creative ways to get things done. And um, I think that's where we'll end up. But just ask yourself this question. We know or can document that physician revenue has decreased dramatically. The cost of health care, as Dr. George points out, continues to go up. A 50% increase in Blue Cross Blue Shield insurance payments when doctors' payments and revenue are, is, are documented to go down, somebody's making money. And so tell me about uh, a little bit about your practices and, and your work and what's happening, you know, as you try to to deal with these these issues. Dr. George, you mentioned some of the changes that you've made in your business model, but mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about some of the other um, things that are happening in your practice. Well, I think like a lot of um, ear, nose, and throat doctors, we've moved away from hospital um, surgeries. So I do a lot more procedures in my office, sinus surgery, septum surgery, polyp removal, um, tube placement, it's really, it's transitioned from being a hospital surgery center-based practice to uh, a very patient-friendly um, financially and, so, you know, medically-based um, practice. So you can do a, a called balloon sinus dilation is something that's very pop, very common I use in my office, and it could be a co-payment for a patient. And if I took them to the OR, it would engage a deductible. So you're talking about maybe $45 for sinus surgery versus a couple of thousand. Those are the little things that you can make patient-centered if you're willing to, you know, up your skills and, and think outside the box and, and really 
up the intensity of your practice. It really does work. And that's one of the things I've done to try to work for the needs of my patients and for myself. What about you, Frank? Uh, I mean, the m more and more people are definitely trying. <clears throat> when I say people, doctors are trying to do more services in their office because it just makes economic sense. Uh, and uh, I think that trend will continue. I think that um, I'm a big believer in, in using the term customer as opposed to patient because I think that feels real different. And I think that customer satisfaction and patient satisfaction will, will rise, will continue to be a, an important factor. I think people will understand the amount of power they have in the system. Individuals will, have the understand, will understand the amount of power they have in the system. And I think they will begin to use that power and vote with their feet. I think they will find practices. Because, again, the basic problem stays the same. I have a medical problem. I need to seek treatment. And I can either, A, knuckle under and allow myself to be trampled on by the system, or B, I can find a doctor like Dr. George who has a creative way to solve the problem, <clears throat> keep me healthy, and do so in an affordable way. So have you found that it's universal, that, that revenues have de decreased um, since uh, the Affordable Care Act and since some of these economic pressures? Are there any spe specialties or parts of medicine that you think are doing better? Not that I see. <clears throat> There's a universal downturn. I'd have to agree. I think that's why most doctors, a lot, <clears throat> used to be three quarters of people who graduated went into private practice, and that's now to, I think, a third. And people have jumped to the hospital side because of they're getting a salary, and they can, can, they have their malpractice paid for them. They have their supplies paid for them by the hospital. So they've jumped to that side of the, of the marketing model because it is so, I mean, this is the only profession that I know that our costs go up the cost of doing business goes up, but our, but our reimbursements have gone down. They don't take any account for real world. You know, malpractice is a huge, a huge amount of money, depending on your specialty. But that's money coming out every year that you've got to come up with. Then you have to credential. You, know, you have to keep your licensure. All these things that have gone up. DEA license used to be, I think it went up, like a 250 It's now almost $800 for a DEA license. This is what they do to us. But my reimbursements have gone down. So it's, it's not compatible. And either doctors have left completely. I have people who now sell insurance, and they were in their prime. I mean, they were like 45 years old practicing medicine, and they're gone. And this is a practice. So you get better as you get older. And we're losing those people. Another thing that's a trend, you ask about trends, I think the face of medicine has changed. So we're seeing a lot more foreign graduate doctors coming into the system. I can't, every time I go online now, Caribbean Medical School pops up on my, I don't know why it does, but it pops up and they tout the fact that you don't have to take an MCAT to go to their school. That's the, like a GMAT, the, the pre-testing you have to do to qualify. So great, you can sit in St. Lucia, not take an MCAT, then come back into our system as a, you know, a clerk, you know, doing your, your, your hospital-based practicing here, but it's not the same. So you're having now the face of medicine change. Who gives you the primary focus? You know, it's a, it's a PA, it's a nurse practitioner. Those are the front line of healthcare. The doctor's in the background signing off on a chart all of a sudden. And the ERs aren't even staffed anymore by doctors. They're physician assistants. And so I'm seeing people who've gone to the ER, who've been misdiagnosed, who end up in my office. I'm like, you're kidding. They did what? I mean, I'm just shocked. 
every day of the, the standard of care has dropped. And that's real world, right? So they're given wrong diagnoses, wrong procedures. I just did an interview on telemedicine. You know, somebody took a picture of their face and sent it to a doctor online on Skype who diagnosed a sinus infection. Of course it wasn't correct, and she ended up in a doctor's office a couple weeks later, sicker. This is the standard of care now. It's no longer the same. And I believe that people need to understand that there's a two-tier system that's coming online. That's another trend. If you stay within the insurance model, you're going to get, I don't believe it's going to be the same standard of care. You're going to pay a lot more for it. You're going to wait a lot longer for it. And then when you do need the care, they might tell you, well, you're too old and too sick. Just have a hospice trip. That's the possibility versus going outside the system, finding a doctor who's going to be a patient advocate, who's going to have compassion, who's not going to think of you as a cost center, but as, a, you know, a patient, a customer, whatever you want to, and value you. And you're going to pay less for that privilege. Those that get it are going to run to that system, leaving those who want it, you know. I'm, I'm about choice. If you want to stay in the healthcare system that we have, have at it. But don't complain about not getting good care because that's the standard now. Right. One of the things that my wife and I have discovered is that um, we've had some friends that have had to go into the hospital. If you ever have to go to the hospital, you better get yourself an advocate. I mean, you need somebody who's going to be watching out for you and making sure the system works for you. Uh, as Dr. George points out. You mean uh, like a physician? No. Just somebody who is mildly aware of healthcare and terminology and can make sure that you get what you're supposed to get. Someone whose job is not treating 20 patients, someone is, whose job is just to make sure that you get what you're supposed to get. And why mean, do you think that's so important? Because if you don't have that advocate, you won't get what you're supposed to get. As staffing, look, as costs get cut, Everyone is responsible for overseeing the care of more patients. The more patients you have to oversee, the less you'll be able to concentrate on each individual patient. So you need to have a family member or a friend or somebody who is relatively fluent. They don't have to be a doctor, but someone who is relatively fluent in medical terminology and understanding of systems who is going to make sure that you get what you're supposed to get. Mm -hmm. He's absolutely right. And I expand on that. It's not just the doctors, it's the nurses. When I trained, we had a collegial relationship with the nurses. We ran the floor, the doctors. We sat with them. We went through every patient. We rounded. <laughs> you don't get that anymore. I mean, we can have doctors admit patients to hospitals. They, don't have, they lose complete control of their patient. They don't know what's going on because you have a hospitalist doctor taking care of the patient. And then when they come out, you f they give you a chart of what they did. But you don't have a say-so. So now you have the nurses also. The, nur the registered nurses were, they were part of the team. This is a huge to-do. They're gone. They're now case managers. And their job is to make sure the patient gets out of the hospital in a timely way that is charted correctly with the right um, admission order. It was observation, ambulatory, or inpatient because the hospital won't be paid. That's where they've gone. That's the top line of nursing. So now you have nursing assistants. Everything's gone to an assistant or some sort of tech. The front line of the patient now is no longer the, the registered nurse. It's the tech who com comes and does their vitals. They don't understand what a vital really is, so the patient can have some crazy number. They're just logging it. 
They're not getting it. It's more than just a number. It's not an algorithm. It's being able to understand and put it together. We don't have that anymore. And you look at the pharmacies. You have pharmacy techs just you know, prescribing and filling it. Everything's gone to a tech. The pharmacist is overseeing. So the people who are the most trained, who have the most experience, are not frontline care anymore. It's gone to the cheapest iteration. And they've given that person more power. So I've seen, I've read articles in years now where they're trying to expand the scope of practice. So you have physician assistants doing surgeries. You have pharmacists writing, or nurses writing narcotic prescriptions. Everybody's doing everybody else's job because they're expanding the scope to keep it cheap. Well, I don't want that kind of medicine practiced on me, and I refuse to do that kind of medicine on my patient. And patients need to understand, if you want something called in, you want to drive by medicine, you're going to get what you pay for, which means somebody's not going to miss a diagnosis. They're going to not pay attention when they should, like in the hospital setting. It's not, it's not all it's cracked up to be, and it does cost more money in morbidity, mortality. And that's where it really comes down to. All right. So this sounds really, really hopeful. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds a little grim. Well, just one. Okay. With all of the things that we've just discussed that are cost-cutting measures that have been put into place by doctor's offices and by hospitals, right? All of those things exist. All of those things are real. And yet the cost of health care continues to go up. Again, you got to ask yourself the question, somebody's making money. Who is it? So what do you guys think is the, you mentioned these um, uh, medical cost sharing mm-hmm. plans as maybe a, a point of hope. If, we, if you guys could give me something positive to end the show with, I would love it. So it's like, what's I the- think <laughs> that's one of the most positive things that you can ask for because it gives people a smaller amount of money that they have to come up with, but the coverage is better and you're accessing the system in a way that's cheaper. So let's say you need to go to you know, a huge hospital you have this company negotiating the price of what you're going to pay ahead of you. They're not going to pay $29 for Tylenol. They're not going to do it. And the hospital knows this. And this is not people don't understand this. You can actually go to the financial part of the hospital and tell them, even if you have commercial insurance, I don't have this money. This is, let's cut a deal. They will cut you a deal. They will drop the price. They just want you to not know about this. This goes on throughout the healthcare system. The, if you're paying your own money, you see it much faster without all the drama and the cost overall is cheaper. But if you decide you want to stay within the, you know, the standardized system, exert your power. Just because someone tells you something doesn't mean it's true. Just because they say it doesn't make it so. And if you say to yourself or say to them, this is what I've got, let's make a deal, you'd be amazed. They'll write off your deductible. They will give you a 70% discount. I can take somebody right here in Sandy Springs to a surgery center who's fee-for-service, self-pay, and give them a set. They already have a rate. They just don't tell you. They don't publish it. That's key. Right. What about you, Frank? Something, uh, what, what is a, ho- a hopeful note about um, physicians and, and uh, healthcare that you can help us end the show on? I, I, look, I think this whole conversation is incredibly hopeful. I mean, we have now shown that there are concerned physicians who really want to manage patients and really want to help get patients better, who have come up with creative systems to cause that to happen in a way that makes the physician and the patient both happy. Uh, um, The one thing about good advertising, good advertising will kill a bad product quickly, okay? The more exposure and the more transparency 
um, that, that uh, is given to the healthcare system and the problems that are manifest within the system, the quicker we'll find solutions. So I, I think that, um, I don't mean to wax overly philosophical, but everything has within it the seeds of its own destruction. And I think that the centralization of healthcare um, certainly has those seeds of self-destruction, and those are beginning now to be understood. And I don't think they'll be tolerated for that much longer. And I think Dr. George is right. There are new models that will come out, and people will find them. So I'm, I'm on the contrary, I'm very hopeful about what, what the way things are going. Great. And if folks want to get in touch with you to hear uh, to, to find out more about anything that you've mentioned, how can they do that, Frank? Uh, www.medicalconsultants.com, uh, 404-272-4883. Thanks. And Dr. George? Um, they can read my blog, drelanageorge.com. That's E-L-A-I-N-A, George like the man's name. And I also have a show, Medicine on Call, Wednesday morning. So it's I go into a lot more detail yeah. what we talked about. Yeah, and um, what's the website for your show? Um, doc, um, Medicine on Call. Okay, thank you. Thanks so much for a great show, y'all. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.